Chapter Six of the Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844 by Friedrich Engels. Chapter Six: Single Branches of Industry, Factory Hands, Part One. In dealing now with the more important branches of the English manufacturing proletariat we shall begin according to the principle already laid down with the factory workers that is those who are comprised under the factory act this law regulates the length of the working day in mills in which wool silk cotton and flax are spun or woven by means of water or steam power and embraces therefore the more important branches of english manufacture the class employed by them is the most intelligent and energetic of all the english workers and therefore the most restless and most hated by the bourgeoisie. It stands as a whole, and the cotton-workers preeminently stand, at the head of the labour movement, as their masters, the manufacturers, especially those of Lancashire, take the lead of the bourgeois agitation. We have already seen in the introduction how the population employed in working up the textile materials were first torn from their former way of life, it is therefore not surprising that the progress of mechanical invention in later years also affected precisely these workers most deeply and permanently. The history of cotton manufacture, as related by Ur, Baines, and others, is the story of improvements in every direction, most of which have become domesticated in the other branches of industry as well. Handwork is superseded by machine-work almost universally nearly all manipulations are conducted by the aid of steam or water and every year is bringing further improvements in a well-ordered state of society such improvements could only be a source of rejoicing in a war of all against all individuals seize the benefit for themselves and so deprive the majority of the means of subsistence every improvement in machinery throws workers out of employment and the greater the advance, the more numerous the unemployed. Each great improvement produces, therefore, upon a number of workers, the effect of a commercial crisis, creates want, wretchedness, and crime. Take a few examples. The very first invention, the jenny, worked by one man, produced at least sixfold what the spinning-wheel had yielded in the same time. Thus every new jenny threw five spinners out of employment. The throstle, which in turn produced much more than the jenny, and like it was worked by one man, threw still more people out of employment. The mule, which required yet fewer hands in proportion to the product, had the same effect, and every improvement in the mule, every multiplication of its spindles, diminished still further the number of workers employed. But this increase of the number of spindles in the mule is so great that whole armies of workers have been thrown out of employment by it for whereas one spinner, with a couple of children for piecers, formerly set six hundred spindles in motion, he could now manage fourteen hundred to two thousand spindles upon two mules, so that two adult spinners and a part of the piecers whom they employed were thrown out. And since self-acting mules have been introduced into a very large number of spinning-mills, the spinner's work is wholly performed by the machine. There lies before me a book from the pen of James Leach, one of the recognized leaders of the Chartists in Manchester. The author has worked for years in various branches of industry, in mills and coal-mines, and is known to me personally as an honest, trustworthy, and capable man. In consequence of his political position, 
he had at command extensive detailed information as to the different factories, collected by the workers themselves, and he publishes tables from which it is clear that in 1841, in 35 factories, 1,060 fewer mule-spinners were employed than in 1829, though the number of spindles in these 35 factories had increased by 99,239. He cites five factories in which no spinners whatever are employed, self-actors only being used. While the number of spindles increased by 10%, the number of spinners diminished more than 60%. And Leach adds that since 1841, so many improvements have been introduced by double-decking and other means, that in some of the factories named, half the operatives have been discharged. In one factory alone, where eighty spinners were employed a short time ago, there are now but twenty left, the others having been discharged or set at children's work for children's wages. Of Stockport, Leach tells a similar story, that in 1835 eight hundred spinners were employed, and in 1840 but one hundred and forty, though the manufacture of Stockport has greatly increased during the last eight or nine years. Similar improvements have now been made in carding frames, by which one-half the operatives have been thrown out of employment. In one factory improved frames have been set up, which have thrown four hands out of eight out of work, besides which the employer reduced the wages of the four retained from eight shillings to seven. The same process has gone on in the weaving industry. The power-loom has taken possession of one branch of hand-weaving after another, and since it produces much more than the hand-loom, while one weaver can work two looms, it has superseded a multitude of working people. And in all sorts of manufacture, in flax and wool spinning, in silk twisting, the case is the same. The power-loom, too, is beginning to appropriate one branch after another of wool and linen weaving. In Rockdale alone there are more power than hand-looms in flannel and other wool-weaving branches. The bourgeoisie usually replies to this that improvements in machinery, by decreasing the cost of production, supply finished goods at lower prices, and that these reduced prices cause such an increase in consumption that the unemployed operatives soon find full employment in newly founded factories. The bourgeoisie is so far correct that under certain conditions favorable for the general development of manufacture, every reduction in price of goods in which the raw material is cheap greatly increases consumption and gives rise to the building of new factories. But every further word of the assertion is a lie. The bourgeoisie ignores the fact that it takes years for these results of the decrease in price to follow and for new factories to be built. It is silent upon the point that every improvement in machinery throws the real work, the expenditure of force, more and more upon the machine, and so transforms the work of full-grown men into mere supervision, which a feeble woman or even a child can do quite as well, and does for half or two-thirds wages, that therefore grown men are constantly more and more supplanted and not re-employed by the increase in manufacture. It conceals the fact that whole branches of industry fall away, or are so changed that they must be learned afresh, and it takes good care not to confess what it usually harps upon whenever the question of forbidding the work of children is broached, that factory work must be learned in earliest youth in order to be learned properly. It does not mention the fact that the process of improvement goes steadily on, and that as soon as the operative has succeeded in making himself at home in a new branch, if he actually does succeed in so doing, this too is taken from him, and with it the last remnant of security which remained to him for winning his bread. 
but the bourgeoisie gets the benefit of the improvements in machinery. It has a capital opportunity for piling up money during the first years while many old machines are still in use, and the improvement not yet universally introduced. And it would be too much to ask that it should have an open eye for the disadvantages inseparable from these improvements. The fact that improved machinery reduces wages has also been as violently disputed by the bourgeoisie as it is constantly reiterated by the working men. The bourgeoisie insists that although the price of piecework has been reduced, yet the total wages for the week's work has rather risen than fallen, and the condition of the operatives rather improved than deteriorated. It is hard to get to the bottom of the matter, for the operatives usually dwell upon the price of piecework. But it is certain that the weekly wage also has, in many branches of work, been reduced by the improvement of machinery. The so-called fine spinners, who spin fine mule-yarn, for instance, do receive high wages, thirty to forty shillings a week, because they have a powerful association for keeping wages up, and their craft requires long training. But the coarse spinners, who have to compete against self-actors, which are not as yet adapted for fine spinning, and whose association was broken down by the introduction of these machines, receive very low wages. A mule-spinner told me that he does not earn more than fourteen shillings a week, and his statement agrees with that of Leach, that in various factories the coarse spinners earn less than sixteen shillings and sixpence a week, and that a spinner, who years ago earned thirty shillings, can now hardly scrape up twelve and a half, and had not earned more on an average in the past year. The wages of women and children may perhaps have fallen less, but only because they were not high from the beginning. I know several women, widows with children, who have trouble enough to earn eight to nine shillings a week, and that they and their families cannot live decently upon that sum, every one must admit who knows the price of the barest necessaries of life in England. That wages in general have been reduced by the improvement of machinery is the unanimous testimony of the operatives. The bourgeois assertion that the condition of the working class has been improved by machinery is most vigorously proclaimed a falsehood in every meeting of workingmen in the factory districts. And even if it were true that the relative wage, the price of piecework only, has fallen, while the absolute wage, the sum to be earned in the week, remained unchanged, what would follow? That the operatives have had quietly to look on, while the manufacturers filled their purses from every improvement without giving the hands the smallest share in the gain. The bourgeois forgets, in fighting the working man, the most ordinary principles of his own political economy. He who at other times swears by Malthus, cries out in his anxiety before the workers, quote, Where could the millions by which the population of England has increased find work without the improvements in machinery? End quote. As though the bourgeois did not know well enough that without machinery and the expansion of industry which it produced, these millions would never have been brought into the world and grown up. The service which machinery has rendered the workers is simply this, that it has brought home to their minds the necessity of a social reform by means of which machinery shall no longer work against but for them. Let the wise bourgeois ask the people who sweep the streets in Manchester and elsewhere, though even this is past now, since machines for the purpose have been invented and introduced, or sell salt, matches, oranges, and shoestrings on the streets, or even beg what they were formerly, and he will see how many will answer, quote, mill-hands thrown out of work by machinery, end quote. The consequences of improvement in machinery under our present social conditions are, for the working man, solely injurious, 
and often in the highest degree oppressive. Every new advance brings with it loss of employment, want, and suffering, and in a country like England, where without that there is usually a surplus population, to be discharged from work is the worst that can befall the operative. And what a dispiriting, unnerving influence this uncertainty of his position in life, consequent on the unceasing progress of machinery, must exercise upon the worker whose lot is precarious enough without it. To escape despair there are but two ways open to him, either inward and outward revolt against the bourgeoisie, or drunkenness and general demoralization. And the English operatives are accustomed to take refuge in both. The history of the English proletariat relates hundreds of uprisings against machinery and the bourgeoisie. We have already spoken of the moral dissolution which, in itself, is only another form of despair. The worst situation is that of those workers who have to compete against a machine that is making its way. The price of the goods which they produce adapts itself to the price of the kindred product of the machine, and as the latter works more cheaply, its human competitor has but the lowest wages. The same thing happens to every operative employed upon an old machine in competition with later improvements. And who else is there to bear the hardship? The manufacturer will not throw out his old apparatus, nor will he sustain the loss upon it. Out of the dead mechanism he can make nothing, so he fastens upon the living worker, the universal scapegoat of society. Of all the workers in competition with machinery, the most ill-used are the hand-loom cotton-weavers, they receive the most trifling wages, and with full work are not in a position to earn more than ten shillings a week. One class of woven goods after another is annexed by the power-loom, and hand-weaving is the last refuge of workers thrown out of employment in other branches, so that the trade is always overcrowded. Hence it comes that, in average seasons, the hand-weaver counts himself fortunate if he can earn six or seven shillings a week while to reach this sum he must sit at his loom fourteen to eighteen hours a day. Most woven goods require, moreover, a damp weaving-room to keep the weft from snapping, and in part for this reason, in part because of their poverty, which prevents them from paying for better dwellings, the work-rooms of these weavers are usually without wooden or paved floors. I have been in many dwellings of such weavers, in remote, vile courts and alleys, usually in cellars, Often half a dozen of these hand-loom weavers, several of them married, live together in a cottage with one or two workrooms and one large sleeping-room. Their food consists almost exclusively of potatoes, with perhaps oatmeal porridge, rarely milk, and scarcely ever meat. Great numbers of them are Irish or of Irish descent, and these poor hand-loom weavers, first to suffer from every crisis and last to be relieved from it, must serve the bourgeoisie as a handle in meeting attacks upon the factory system. Quote, see, cries the bourgeois triumphantly, see how these poor creatures must famish while the mill operatives are thriving, and then judge the factory system. As though it were not precisely the factory system and the machinery belonging to it which had so shamefully crushed the handloom weavers, and as though the bourgeoisie did not know this quite as well as ourselves. But the bourgeoisie has interests at stake, and so a falsehood or two, and a bit of hypocrisy, won't matter much. Let us examine somewhat more closely the fact that machinery more and more supersedes the work of men. The human labour, involved in both spinning and weaving, consists chiefly in piecing broken threads, as the machine does all the rest. 
This work requires no muscular strength, but only flexibility of finger. Men are therefore not only not needed for it, but actually, by reason of the greater muscular development of the hand, less fit for it than women and children, and are therefore naturally almost superseded by them. Hence, the more the use of the arms, the expenditure of strength, can be transferred to steam or water-power, the fewer men need be employed. And as women and children work more cheaply, and in these branches better than men, they take their places. In the spinning-mills women and girls are to be found in almost exclusive possession of the throstles. Among the mules one man, an adult spinner, with self-actors he too becomes superfluous, and several piecers for tying the threads, usually children or women, sometimes young men of from eighteen to twenty years, here and there an old spinner thrown out of other employment. At the power-looms women, from fifteen to twenty years, are chiefly employed, and a few men. These, however, rarely remain at this trade after their twenty-first year. Among the preparatory machinery, too, women alone are to be found, with here and there a man to clean and sharpen the carding frames. Besides all these, the factories employ numbers of children, doffers, for mounting and taking down bobbins, and a few men as overlookers, a mechanic and an engineer for the steam-engines, carpenters, porters, etc., but the actual work of the mills is done by women and children. This the manufacturers deny. They published last year elaborate tables to prove that machinery does not supersede adult male operatives. According to these tables, rather more than half of all the factory workers employed, that is, 52%, were females and 48% males, and of those operatives more than half were over 18 years old. So far, so good. But the manufacturers are very careful not to tell us how many of the adults were men and how many women. And this is just the point. Besides this, they have evidently counted the mechanics, engineers, carpenters, all the men employed in any way in the factories, perhaps even the clerks, and still they have not the courage to tell the whole truth. These publications teem generally with falsehoods, perversions, crooked statements, with calculations of averages that prove a great deal for the uninitiated reader and nothing for the initiated, and with suppressions of facts bearing on the most important points, and they prove only the selfish blindness and want of uprightness of the manufacturers concerned. Let us take some of the statements of a speech with which Lord Ashley introduced the Ten Hours' Bill, March 15, 1844, into the House of Commons. Here he gives some data as to the relations of sex and age of the operatives, not yet refuted by the manufacturers, whose statements, as quoted above, cover moreover only a part of the manufacturing industry of England. Of 419,560 factory operatives of the British Empire in 1839, 192,887, or nearly half, were under 18 years of age, and 242,296 of the female sex, of whom 112,192 were less than 18 years old. There remain, therefore, 80,695 male operatives under 18 years, and 96,569 adult male operatives, or not one full quarter of the whole number. In the cotton factories, 56.25%, in the woolen mills, 69.5%, in the silk mills, 70.5%, in the flax-spinning mills, seventy and a half percent of all operatives are of the female sex. 
these numbers suffice to prove the crowding out of adult males but you have only to go into the nearest mill to see the fact confirmed hence follows of necessity that inversion of the existing social order which being forced upon them has the most ruinous consequences for the workers the employment of women at once breaks up the family for when the wife spends twelve or thirteen hours every day in the mill and the husband works the same length of time there or elsewhere what becomes of the children they grow up like wild weeds they are put out to nurse for a shilling or eighteen pence a week and how they are treated may be imagined hence the accidents to which little children fall victims multiply in the factory districts to a terrible extent the lists of the coroner of manchester showed for nine months sixty-nine deaths from burning fifty-six from drowning twenty-three from falling seventy-seven from other causes or a total of two hundred and twenty-five deaths from accidents while in non-manufacturing liverpool during twelve months there were but one hundred and forty-six fatal accidents the mining accidents are excluded in both cases and since the coroner of manchester has no authority in salford the population of both places mentioned in the comparison is about the same the manchester guardian reports one or more deaths by burning in almost every number that the general mortality among young children must be increased by the employment of the mothers is self-evident and is placed beyond all doubt by notorious facts women often return to the mill three or four days after confinement leaving the baby of course in the dinner hour they must hurry home to feed the child and eat something and what sort of suckling that can be is also evident lord ashley repeats the testimony of several workwomen m h twenty years old has two children the youngest a baby that is tended by the other a little older the mother goes to the mill shortly after five o'clock in the morning and comes home at eight at night all day the milk pours from her breasts so that her clothing drips with it Quote, h w has three children goes away monday morning at five o'clock and comes back saturday evening has so much to do for the children then that she cannot get to bed before three o'clock in the morning often wet through to the skin and obliged to work in that state she said quote, my breasts have given me the most frightful pain and i have been dripping wet with milk the use of narcotics to keep the children still is fostered by this infamous system and has reached a great extent in the factory districts dr johns registrar-in-chief for manchester is of opinion that this custom is the chief source of the many deaths from convulsions the employment of the wife dissolves the family utterly and of necessity and this dissolution in our present society which is based upon the family brings the most demoralizing consequences for parents as well as children a mother who has no time to trouble herself about her child to perform the most ordinary loving services for it during its first year who scarcely indeed sees it can be no real mother to the child must inevitably grow indifferent to it treat it unlovingly like a stranger the children who grow up under such conditions are utterly ruined for later family life can never feel at home in the family which they themselves found because they have always been accustomed to isolation and they contribute therefore to the already general undermining of the family in the working class a similar dissolution of the family is brought about by the employment of children when they get on far enough to earn more than they cost their parents from week to week they begin to pay the parents a fixed sum for board and lodging and keep the rest for themselves 
this often happens from the fourteenth or fifteenth year in a word the children emancipate themselves and regard the paternal dwelling as a lodging-house which they often exchange for another as suits them in many cases the family is not wholly dissolved by the employment of the wife but turned upside down the wife supports the family the husband sits at home tends the children sweeps the room and cooks this case happens very frequently in manchester alone many hundred such men could be cited condemned to domestic occupations it is easy to imagine the wrath aroused among the working-men by this reversal of all relations within the family while the other social conditions remain unchanged there lies before me a letter from an english working-man robert pounder baron's buildings woodhouse moorside and leeds the bourgeoisie may hunt him up there i give the exact address for the purpose written by him to osler he relates how another working-man being on tramp came to st helens in lancashire and there looked up an old friend he found him in a miserable damp cellar scarcely furnished and when my poor friend went in there sat poor jack near the fire and what did he think you why he sat and mended his wife's stockings with the bodkin and as soon as he saw his old friend at the doorpost he tried to hide them but joe that is my friend's name had seen it and said quote, jack what the devil art thou doing where is the missus why is that thy work and poor jack was ashamed and said quote, no i know this is not my work but my poor missus is in the factory she has to leave at half-past five and works till eight at night and then she is so knocked up that she cannot do aught when she gets home so i have to do everything for her what i can for i have no work nor had any for more nor three years and i shall never have any more work while i live and then he wept a big tear jack again said quote, there is work enough for women folks and childer hereabouts but none for men thou mayst sooner find a hundred pound on the road than work for men but i should never have believed that either thou or any one else would have seen me mending my wife's stockings for it is bad work but she can hardly stand on her feet i am afraid she will be laid up and then i don't know what is to become of us for it's a good bit that she has been the man in the house and i the woman it is bad work joe and he cried bitterly and said quote, it has not been always so quote, no said joe but when thou hadn't no work how hast thou not shifted quote, i'll tell thee joe as well as i can but it was bad enough thou knowest when i got married i had work plenty and thou knows i was not lazy quote, no that thou wert not quote, and we had a good furnished house and mary need not go to work i could work for the two of us but now the world is upside down mary has to work and i have to stop at home mind the children sweep and wash bake and mend and when the poor woman comes home at night she is knocked up thou knows joe it's hard for one that was used different quote, yes boy it is hard End quote. and then jack began to cry again and he wished he had never married and that he had never been born but that he had never thought when he wed mary that it would come to this quote, i have often cried over it said jack now when joe heard this he told me that he had cursed and damned the factories and the masters and the government with all the curses that he had learned while he was in the factory from a child can any one imagine a more insane state of things than that described in this letter 
and yet this condition which unsexes the man and takes from the woman all womanliness without being able to bestow upon the man true womanliness or the woman true manliness this condition which degrades in the most shameful way both sexes and through them humanity is the last result of our much praised civilization the final achievement of all the efforts and struggles of hundreds of generations to improve their own situation and that of their posterity we must either despair of mankind and its aims and efforts when we see all our labour and toil result in such a mockery or we must admit that human society has hitherto sought salvation in a false direction we must admit that so total a reversal of the position of the sexes can have come to pass only because the sexes have been placed in a false position from the beginning if the reign of the wife over the husband as inevitably brought about by the factory system is inhuman the pristine rule of the husband over the wife must have been inhuman too if the wife can now base her supremacy upon the fact that she supplies the greater part nay the whole of the common possession the necessary influence is that this community of possession is no true and rational one since one member of the family boasts offensively of contributing the greater share if the family of our present society is being thus dissolved this dissolution merely shows that at bottom the binding tie of this family was not family affection but private interest lurking under the cloak of a pretended community of possessions the same relation exists on the part of those children who support unemployed parents when they do not directly pay board as already referred to dr hawkins testified in the factories inquiry commission's report that this relation is common enough and in manchester it is notorious in this case the children are the masters in the house as the wife was in the former case and lord ashley gives an example of this in his speech a man berated his two daughters for going to the public-house and they answered that they were tired of being ordered about saying quote, damn you we have to keep you end quote. determined to keep the proceeds of their work for themselves they left the family dwelling and abandoned their parents to their fate the unmarried women who have grown up in mills are no better off than the married ones it is self-evident that a girl who has worked in a mill from her ninth year is in no position to understand domestic work whence it follows that female operatives prove wholly inexperienced and unfit as housekeepers they cannot knit or sew cook or wash are unacquainted with the most ordinary duties of a housekeeper and when they have young children to take care of have not the vaguest idea how to set about it the factories inquiries commission's report gives dozens of examples of this and dr hawkins commissioner for lancashire expresses his opinion as follows quote, the girls marry early and recklessly they have neither means time nor opportunity to learn the ordinary duties of household life but if they had them all they would find no time in married life for the performance of these duties the mother is more than twelve hours away from her child daily the baby is cared for by a young girl or an old woman to whom it is given to nurse besides this the dwelling of the mill-hands is too often no home but a cellar which contains no cooking or washing utensils no sewing or mending materials nothing which makes life agreeable and civilized or the domestic hearth attractive for these and other reasons and especially for the sake of the better chances of life for the little children i can but wish and hope that a time may come in which married women will be shut out of the factories 
but that is the least of the evil the moral consequences of the employment of women in factories are even worse the collecting of persons of both sexes and all ages in a single workroom the inevitable contact the crowding into a small space of people to whom neither mental nor moral education has been given is not calculated for the favourable development of the female character the manufacturer if he pays any attention to the matter can interfere only when something scandalous actually happens the permanent less conspicuous influence of persons of dissolute character upon the more moral and especially upon the younger ones he cannot ascertain and consequently cannot prevent but precisely this influence is the most injurious the language used in the mills is characterized by many witnesses in the report of eighteen thirty three as indecent bad filthy etc it is the same process upon a small scale which we have already witnessed upon a large one in the great cities the centralization of population has the same influence upon the same persons whether it affects them in a great city or a small factory the smaller the mill the closer the packing and the more unavoidable the contact and the consequences are not wanting a witness in leicester said that he would rather let his daughter beg than go into a factory that they are perfect gates of hell that most of the prostitutes of the town had their employment in the mills to thank for their present situation another in manchester quote, did not hesitate to assert that three-fourths of the young factory employees from fourteen to twenty years of age were unchaste commissioner cowell expresses it as his opinion that the morality of the factory operatives is somewhat below the average of that of the working class in general and dr hawkins says quote, an estimate of sexual morality cannot readily be reduced to figures but if i may trust my own observations and the general opinion of those with whom i have spoken as well as the whole tenor of the testimony furnished me the aspect of the influence of factory life upon the morality of the youthful female population is most depressing it is besides a matter of course that factory servitude like any other and to an even higher degree confers the just primae noctis upon the master in this respect also the employer is sovereign over the persons and charms of his employees the threat of discharge suffices to overcome all resistance in nine cases out of ten if not in ninety-nine out of a hundred in girls who in any case have no strong inducements to chastity if the master is mean enough and the official report mentions several such cases his mill is also his harem and the fact that not all manufacturers use their power does not in the least change the position of the girls in the beginning of manufacturing industry when most of the employers were upstarts without education or consideration for the hypocrisy of society they let nothing interfere with the exercise of their vested rights to form a correct judgment of the influence of factory work upon the health of the female sex it is necessary first to consider the work of children and then the nature of the work itself from the beginning of manufacturing industry children have been employed in mills at first almost exclusively by reason of the smallness of the machines which were later enlarged even children from the workhouses were employed in multitudes being rented out for a number of years to the manufacturers as apprentices they were lodged fed and clothed in common and were of course completely the slaves of their masters by whom they were treated with the utmost recklessness and barbarity as early as seventeen ninety six 
the public objection to this revolting system found such vigorous expression through dr percival and sir robert peel father of the cabinet minister and himself a cotton manufacturer that in eighteen o two parliament passed an apprentices bill by which the most crying evils were removed gradually the increasing competition of free workpeople crowded out the whole apprentice system factories were built in cities machinery was constructed on a larger scale and workrooms were made more airy and wholesome gradually too more work was found for adults and young persons the number of children in the mills diminished somewhat and the age at which they began to work rose a little few children under eight or nine years were now employed later as we shall see the power of the state intervened several times to protect them from the money-greed of the bourgeoisie the great mortality among children of the working class and especially among those of the factory operatives is proof enough of the unwholesome conditions under which they pass their first year these influences are at work of course among the children who survive but not quite so powerfully as upon those who succumb the result in the most favourable case is a tendency to disease or some check in development and consequent less than normal vigour of the constitution a nine years old child of a factory operative that has grown up in want privation and changing conditions in cold and damp with insufficient clothing and unwholesome dwellings is far from having the working force of a child brought up under healthier conditions at nine years of age it is sent into the mill to work six and a half hours formerly eight earlier still twelve to fourteen even sixteen hours daily until the thirteenth year then twelve hours until the eighteenth year the old enfeebling influences continue while the work is added to them it is not to be denied that a child of nine years even an operative child can hold out through six and a half hours daily work without any one being able to trace visible bad results in its development directly to this cause but in no case can its presence in the damp heavy air of the factory often at once warm and wet contribute to good health and in any case it is unpardonable to sacrifice to the greed of an unfeeling bourgeoisie the time of children which should be devoted solely to their physical and mental development withdraw them from school and the fresh air in order to wear them out for the benefit of the manufacturers the bourgeoisie says quote, if we do not employ the children in the mills they only remain under conditions unfavourable to their development and this is true on the whole but what does this mean if it is not a confession that the bourgeoisie first places the children of the working class under unfavourable conditions and then exploits these bad conditions for its own benefit appeals to that which is as much its own fault as the factory system excuses the sin of to-day with the sin of yesterday and if the factory act did not in some measure fetter their hands how this humane this benevolent bourgeoisie which has built its factories solely for the good of the working class would take care of the interests of these workers let us hear how they acted before the factory inspector was at their heels their own admitted testimony shall convict them in the report of the factory's inquiry commission of eighteen thirty three End of chapter 6, part 1